Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. This is the second follow-up to the Codependency Deep Dive. This is a patron-only episode, but I have a little bit of a lengthy intro here if you're interested. So, anonymous patron wrote in and they said, Can a codependent, over-functioning parent cause their children to develop dependent personality disorder? So, just chime in here. Yeah, absolutely. A parent who is codependent and and therefore over-functioning can absolutely uh, contribute to the development of dependent personality disorder in a child. Uh, codependency and over-dependency actually fit very well together. And as I've talked about before, codependency is sometimes confused with over-dependency or dependent personality disorder, but they are definitely not the same thing. In a lot of ways, they are opposites. Um, but anyway, uh, I've got into detail on that nuance. Going on with the email, my aunt married an alcoholic in her early 20s and they had two children. They divorced about 20 years ago. For as long as I can remember, my aunt would help my cousins unnecessarily. For instance, she would cut up their food for them, even though they, they were teenage uh, children, and seemed to always be heavily involved in their personal and work lives. My, cousin, my cousins are now in their late 20s. The oldest has struggled with alcoholism for at least the past six or seven years. My aunt seemed to be in denial about this, and for many years would insist it was just fine for other family members to drink around my cousin, or for my cousin to have just one beer. Both cousins, so just tie me in here. If you grow up in a family where there was addiction, there are a lot of behaviors that crop up and are modeled to children that uphold the addiction, such as denial, minimization, and other kinds of enabling things. The, you know, what's happening is that the individual who is struggling with addiction has probably been trying to cut back or even you know become even abstain but there are so many uh, factors that lead to them having a really hard time reducing their use um, namely the addiction itself the physical addiction as is sometimes referred to but also a lot of people use substances as a emotional regulation tool in fact i've never met someone who struggled with addiction who wasn't using it as an emotional regulation tool. And people sometimes struggle with emotional regulation because they have been heavily traumatized and terrorized as children. So the childhood trauma leads to emotional regulation, which which uh, leads to, um, you know, addiction. So, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, psychological dependence on it. And the family will and the individual will say hey you know this person drinks too much there's consequences but the uh the consequences for not using are actually higher in the short term than the consequences for using and that's important to understand is that when you look at someone who has an addiction it's just like well why don't you just stop you know it, it's it's ruining your life the the emotional and life consequences to not using in the short term are far, far higher than the consequences for using. Having said that, another thing that kicks, kicks in is denial because one feels trapped. You're just, you're almost like having Stockholm syndrome with your own addiction. And therefore the rest of the family has Stockholm syndrome with the addiction because the addiction is so 
overpowering that the individual has a choice. They can either buck up against their own addiction every day and struggle, or they can just give in and say, you know what? I don't have an addiction. I don't have a problem. And that is a preferable day. You know, it's, it's preferable to be in denial about something that you have no control over. You know, we do this all the time, not just with addictions, but you know, you, you today in today's world, there are all sorts of problems with uh, climate change and a lot of people will just go into denial about it. You know, it's just, well, I'll just go through my day, even though we're polluting the, the world every second of every day. And it's, it's, because what else are you supposed to do? We're powerless over it because our governments refuse to do anything about it. And so, or they refuse to do enough about it. And so what else can you do other than to just go into denial, right? So uh, it's a human mechanism that helps us survive, you know, helps us to, you know, get from point A to point B and, and to provide for our families and to provide for ourselves. And so addiction is the same way. And so when these mechanisms of denial permeate through a family and get modeled to the children, and, and it's not like people are saying, hey, today I'm going to be in denial. It's a very slow process. It's very subtle. You might have a 12-year-old kid who says, like, I think dad might drink too much. And then very quickly, the system will react and say, oh, well, you know, he's just going through a tough time or maybe even anger towards the child, like stop, you know, it's none of your business. And these I, these rules you know, and sub rules that uh, and routines that uphold denial can be quite complex. And when you model that to a child, they learn that it's the, neurologically, right? It's not just like a lesson that you learn. It's like, learning how to ride a bike, right? You don't have, when, when you know how to ride a bike, you don't have to think about how to ride a bike. It just comes to you naturally because your neurons actually wire in such a way that coordinate the balance and the movements such that you don't have to think about it. The same way with walking or any other kind of complex thing that we do as humans. And denial is one of those things. You know, we often think about psychological and behavior processes as not physical, but they are, you know, in that they involve physical neurons. And denial is one of those things. It becomes just automatic. It feels right. And to not go into denial feels very unnatural and can really buck up against all your neurons, you know. Um, it's like trying to write with your, you know, non-dominant hand or something. You're just like, what's happening right now? And so denial gets passed down. And then with you know, and and then your your code, and then let's say as a child, you also are developing the schemas that lead to codependency, meaning that you have a deep need to solve other people's problems, and and you don't have really an ability to look at the self, and you don't value the self really because it was it was modeled to you, or you were kind of forced into that position as a child, and then you have a kid, so 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 then so you're codependent. And you need to take care of other people because if you don't, you feel empty on the inside or you have, you've been told to be incredibly hypervigilant about other people's self-destruction. And then you have kids and kids are, you know, inherently self-destructive at times, you know, even three-year-olds are self-destructive at times, meaning that they don't do things that enhance their life, you know, uh, 
a six-year-old kid is just like, I don't want to go to school. I was just like, um, you, you have to go to school. Or a 13-year-old says, you know, I don't want to take my medication or I don't want to do my chores or I don't want to do my homework or whatever. You know, it's self-destruction. And as a, and you know, born out of immaturity or some kind of personality issue, which is normal for 13 year olds. Right. But as a, as a parent, how do you navigate that? Right. And if you are neurologically, uh, uh, you know, wired, so to speak, to be extremely afraid of your children making mistakes and incurring consequences, uh, you know, it's normal as a parent to worry like, Oh my God, my kid is, is flunking this class or my kid is smoking pot occasionally you know it's it's normal to be worried of course you should that's what good parents do but for the codependent person it becomes like a hundred times worse the fear is overwhelming and it completely eclipses any kind of parental wisdom that the parent has and and then they will also feel completely responsible so they they both feel terrified of sometimes like really unnamed consequences. Like when I've talked to codependent people, I said, you know, what exactly are you worried is going to happen? And they'll just be like, well, you know, it'll, it'll upset them. You know, something will happen and they'll, you know, bad things like, well, what bad things I'll ask them, you know, what, what exactly? And they just don't really have anything because it was just injected into their psyche as a child that like beyond the veil of, those you know unnamed consequences is just utter annihilation and at a deep black abyss so a big part of recovery from codependency is being able to really analyze that and say like you know actually i i'm afraid of just something that's unnamed and when i really think about it the consequences you know it's not really even that bad i mean they're, they're it's not great but it's not like the end of the world you know so not only are they terrified but they're also uh, believe, they also believe that it is only their job. No one else can help this person except for them. And so, you know, you have a kid that is, uh, as, as you're saying, an honest patron um, dealing with trying to cut their own meat. And the parent just feels like, oh, no, if the kid has stress about cutting their own meat, then uh, that will lead to more stress and maybe self-esteem issues for the kid or a meltdown for the kid. And I have to, uh, and, and and every parent would have that worry, but that worry is times by 100. And then this second thing that kicks in is like, it's my job to fix it, and no one else can fix it. And this child cannot cannot fix it on their own. They can't figure it out on their own. There's, there's only one thing that's happening right here. You know, the, the, to understand a codependent parent, and there are all sorts of codependent relationships, you can have codependency with your boss. And in the last episode I was talking about, you can have codependency with society even. But if you're having codependency with your child, uh, you know, for you parents out there, you know, just think about the kinds of fears that you f feel about your kid. Your kid is, I don't know, what's, what's a real common fear? Uh, let's see, your kid is going to school, maybe, or your kid is the very first time you have your kid go to a daycare or very first time you're separated from your kid. Maybe how about that? That's a pretty common uh, threshold that parents will cross of just like, you know, you, especially your first kid. I think that that's particular. And for the very first time you have a babysitter or you even just give your kid to your, 
to your parents and you go on date night or you just get a good night's sleep or a long bath or something, you know, just get this separation. And not every parent is like this, but, but many parents are. It's just like, it's, it's scary. You just think like, well, what if something happens and I'm not there? And you feel responsible because you're the parent, which is good, right? So it's a normal feeling to have. Well, times that times 100 and extend that throughout the entire lifespan of the child. You know, the child is 35 and struggling at work. And you feel the same fear times 100 that you did the first time you handed over the infant to a daycare or to a babysitter or something. And it's real. You know, it's it's not like codependent parents are just making it up. They they feel that fear and they feel that fear because they were programmed when they were very young to feel that that way. And so when you uh, oftentimes when we look at codependent behavior, we're just like, why are you doing that? You know, it's you have bad boundaries, you're enmeshed. But the reality is is that the the dysfunctional annoying behavior is motivated by very logical uh, it, it's very logical to so, so there, there, there's irrational steps in this process internally, and there are logical steps. The first step is irrational, that my 35-year-old son, who, you know, is struggling with dependency and self-confidence, um, I feel like I need to do everything for him, you know, and, and fix all his problems. Um, the the notion there is irrational. There's a lot of irrationality. There's a lot of distortion in the assumptions about the what's going to happen. But once you make that irrational leap in terms of your schema and your belief that something very dire is going to happen and it's my job, then everything is logical from that point forward. Because if the from as soon as you feel that fear, all the be, all the codependent outward behaviors that you see make sense based on that fear. So what often will happen is people will be told just stop being codependent. But really what needs to happen is you have to address that irrationality that be, that starts prior to any behavior even being motivated. Does that make sense? Anyway. So, uh, you know, you're saying here, my aunt seemed to be in denial about, the, you know, my cousin that had alcoholism and would insist it was fine that other family members would drink around my cousin and, for my cousin to have just just one beer, it's not a big deal. Just going on with the email here. Both cousins still live at home, and my aunt regularly wakes them up in the morning, drives them to work, etc. They seem uninterested in changing the current situation and have no intent on moving out, even though they could both afford to. They all appear to be pretty unhappy, though. My aunt panics if she doesn't hear from them for a few hours. She seems to want to be in control of everything around her and tends to order everyone around. If you ask either of my cousins a question, she will answer for them. She has told me several times that I need to do something about my eldest cousin as I have, as if I have any control over the situation. I am wondering if her overfunctioning and codependent tendencies have led to my cousins being completely dependent on her. I also wonder if there is any hope for my cousins to break out of this cycle and lead lives that make them happy one day. End of email. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to evaluate them. But given what you said, it's a perfectly uh, sound hypothesis to pursue in therapy that uh, her uh, codependency, which seems quite profound and significant, um, absolutely can create dependency in children. There, There usually are other factors as well. That, that I've seen, like um, 
I don't know, just divorce or the kid gets into trouble. You know, there's just a lot of reasons that kind of contribute to um, the codependent uh, parent and dependent child. And then you also wonder if there's any hope for your cousins to break out of the cycle. Um, You know, some people grow out of it, but personality disorders, and I'm framing codependency as a personality disorder because it has all the hallmarks. It uh, distorts reality. It is pervasive. It's based on, you know, relational traumas. It's neurological. It's like pervasive throughout your personality. And of course, dependent personality is a personality disorder. And personality disorders do not relent naturally, usually. And it usually requires the two things that I always say all psychotherapy and human you know, psychological change is boiled down to, which is one, awareness, and two, corrective experiences or healing. And until the de- your dependent cousins are aware of their uh, distortions, because they probably have distortions themselves uh, based on the way they were treated, then the, that's the... I don't know, insidious nature of the codependent dependent match is that the everyone assumes that the dependent people, these cousins of yours in their late 20s, are inherently incompetent, as if they couldn't drive themselves to work on their own, as if they couldn't live on their own. It's just assumed. And it's it's weird. You know, from the outside, you're like, you're 29. You can live on your own. <laughs> you know, you are... Uh, when you go to work, you you function fine, but somehow when you're at home, you just assume there's just like you're just a completely incompetent, uh, you know, child man, and it's it's weird from the outside, but on the inside, that's how it feels. It feels incredibly, overwhelmingly obvious that the dependent person because you know the codependent person also assumes that other people are incompetent that's another part of this part of the schema they feel like uh, it's it would be irresponsible you know the codependent believes it's irresponsible to not step in because it's clear that the other person can't can't manage on their own and of course this is a self-fulfilling prophecy because the more you treat someone like they can't do things on their own, the more they believe they can't do things on their own and the less you allow them to learn from their own mistakes. And therefore they don't actually learn how to do things on their own. And it, it becomes true. You know, you have a 29 year old uh, guy who is actually incompetent. He can't drive a car. He can't balance a check checkbook. He can't pay his own bills because he hasn't learned how, and he believes that he can't do it. But Unless someone has cognitive, you know, developmental uh, disabilities or or deficits, um, which you know is possible, but it doesn't sound like it. There's no reason to believe that with some space to learn and some mistakes along the way, that after a few years they could be completely independent and you know, quote unquote, normal as a 32 year old living on their own and balancing their own checkbook and, you know, making mistakes. It's not like 32 year olds don't make mistakes. They do. They get in fender benders. They get speeding tickets. They overdraft their checking account. Sometimes they drink too much and show up late to work. You know, this is a big part of my work with codependent parents in particular is it's okay if you're not there when your child makes a mistake. It's okay. They'll learn. 
You know, they have their own brain and their own uh, mind. They can, they'll figure it out. You know, uh, for some people, and this can be really hard on codependent parents, for some kids and adult children, they have to experience mistakes like 10 times before they learn. You know, sometimes this is related to ADHD, but sometimes it's just a personality trait that, and I working with families would find this a lot, that they're, some kids will learn the first time. Well, actually, some kids will learn before they make the mistake because they'll watch other people making the mistake. So these kids are extremely conscientious. They're very safe. They might be anxious, but they might just be oriented that way or, you know, able to pick up on that. You know, they don't need to blow out on drugs to learn that drugs are bad. They just they just watch it happen. And go, oh, that's not for me. They don't need to learn that speeding on the highway is a bad idea. They just, they just, oh, you know, that, that looks like a bad idea. Whereas other kids, for various reasons, they have to make the mistake themselves. They cannot learn from watching others. They cannot be told in general about the dangers of life and just learn from you telling them. Like, you probably should avoid using drugs or you probably should not uh, speed on the highway. They have to experience it themselves. And this can be very frustrating to a parent, very concerning, and and could obviously lead to some terrible consequences. But to the codependent parent, this is this is their kryptonite, you know, to have a kid who won't learn from their mistakes. It it, it becomes even more compelling to the codependent parent that it that they actually um, you know, help the child because you know, for for the codependent parent, it's hard for them to deal with the child making like one or two mistakes and then learning because those one or two mistakes can be very anxiety provoking to the parent. They're like, oh, my God, what, you know, what are the consequences? But imagine if you have a kid that needs 10 mistakes before they learn. Well, that requires the codependent parent to to like white knuckle it through 10 mistakes repeatedly on various different dimensions that's a tall order for them. It's a tall order for any parent, frankly. But anyway, so that's my response to you, Anonymous Patron. I have so many other emails to review because a lot of you actually wrote in about this. It really apparently resonated the idea of codependency with a lot of you. But it will be for patrons only. So if you want to listen to the rest of this episode, become a patron of the podcast. We go to patreon.com. Do so now if you like. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. This next email is from patron Heidi from Sunnyvale. She says, I have a friend who I keep thinking about while listening to your codependency deep dive. She lives with her sickly mother while completing medical residency as a nurse. She is constantly looking to help others. She refuses to let anyone else pay for her. She will continue to help people even after they tell her to stop helping them. This makes me curious if codependency is a more common thing in nursing. It seems like one of the perfect jobs to fill the need to feel needed by people. End of email. Yeah, I don't know the research on it, but um, anecdotally, I would absolutely say this is true. I know nurses as well. And, you know, I just a quick inventory. I would say there's a higher prevalence of what seems to be codependency. Also in therapy, you know, I, as a 
as a trainer of therapists, have come across hundreds of trainees and supervised many of them, and absolutely will say that there's um, a higher pre- prevalence of, of codependency among those folks as well. But it in therapy, it can really ruin your experience as a therapist because you're not just helping clients, you're like desperate to help them. And all their problems become your problems because of enmeshment. And you will, as a therapist, get get crushed uh, every day by the amount of problems that are coming your way. You know, typically a codependent person focuses on one or two people, usually it's just one person. But imagine having like 50 clients with some of the worst problems that you'll ever hear about. That is crushing to the codependent because they believe it's their job to fix that. And I've run across this absolutely with some trainees, and I spent a lot of time trying to change that irrationality, that assumption that it's their job. And it could take, you know, to some extent, this element is present with all trainees. I, I think there's just this idea that therapists are for whatever reason i a, every novice therapist i've worked with has this to some degree that this assumption that one every problem the client has is the responsibility of the therapist and two that you're supposed to as a therapist be able to fix it very quickly sometimes within the first two sessions you know i'll i'll have trainees that'll they'll after the second session they're just like all stressed out and they're and you know I'm asking, you know, what's going on? And they describe essentially this feeling of of being overwhelmed with the client's problems. And I, I remind them, like I say, remember that clients come to therapy because they have frustratingly tenacious problems. <laughs> like it's get used to it, my friend, because uh, this is what therapy is. And, uh, you know, you know, they usually pretty quickly adjust to it. But it's this weird, I don't know where it comes from, if it comes from like society or something, or just all this pent up energy as they're going through graduate school, this like, desire to help just comes, you know, speeding out of the gates of just like, I want to save everyone. And um, but anyway, I, I have absolutely worked with trainees with codependent um, leanings, if not full on the personality disorder, as I'm now framing it. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's rough. You know, you could see a codependent person having a hard time doing or not really being attracted to solitary jobs. Um, you could see codependent people, uh, being good office managers, you know, people who are in charge of other people or even just a boss, right? That they, feel very compelled to solve everyone's problems around them. And it might even be good for the bottom line of the business that they have this problem, right? All right, next email from anonymous patron, they write, Hi, Dr. Kirk, thanks for your deep dive on codependency. I recognize myself a lot in what was discussed. My childhood involved a lot of instability, neglect, and physical and emotional abuse. I suspect my mother had borderline personality disorder and my stepfather possibly had antisocial and or sadistic. I wouldn't say our parents were alcoholic in the classic sense, but they drank consistently. Growing up, we received messages that we were burdens, unworthy, and defective, and we still struggle with feelings of guilt towards our parents today. 
My sister and I have developed differently, though. She's more aggressive and preoccupied, and I'm more passive and avoidant. At age 21, I entered into a 16-year relationship with a man who was older than me who had complex mental health issues, a history of delinquent, delinquency and drug use, hypersexuality, and drank heavily. His childhood involved poverty, abuse, addicted parents, and a stint in foster care. I found him charming and fascinating. We, click, we quickly became infatuated and enmeshed with each other. By the time his aggression and instability became evident, I felt trapped, terrified, and disgusted with myself for repeating my mother's pattern, but continued to love him and tried to support him. I think that we both had elements of codependency, though. I fit more of the helper chameleon type while he was more of the controlling type. We seemed to share under and over functioning between us. He overfunctioned on anything practical, including cooking and cleaning, and constantly criticized and micromanaged my behavior, character, career, and appearance. I took care of the emotional side of things, trying to help him manage his stress, emotional volatility, separation, anxiety, sensitivity to criticism. Gradually, I started drinking as much as him, partly to cope with the stress of being around him while he drank. All right, so just chiming in here. This is a really excellent description of one, the background of two people that would absolutely set them up for a variety of personality disorders and issues in relationships and, and personality wise, you know, both of them went through a, a lot, uh, both the anonymous patron and their partner. And the other thing we're hearing is this, another example, you know, someone gave it in the previous follow-up regarding uh, having both that you can be both the underfunctioner and the codependent person. I'm trying to avoid using the overfunctioner word as the label because I want to reserve that as a label for people that are just overfunctioning and they don't have a personality of codependency. But anyway, so uh, what they're saying is with them and their uh, partner, both of them would, they, they took different jobs of, of being the codependent person. One, the the dude was the guy was <laughs> codependent regarding cooking and cleaning and micromanaging their behavior. And then for the anonymous patron, they were uh, micromanaging the emotional side and criticizing and trying to help on the emotional side. So it's an interesting example of that. Let's go on here. For 16 years, I lived with split consciousness, consciousness, on the one hand, focusing on caring for him and taking comfort in the fact that he loved me. On the other hand, I knew I was in a toxic relationship that repeated patterns from my childhood, and I was too frightened and overwhelmed to leave. Over time, I became withdrawn and resentful, shut down emotionally, and completely lost my sex drive, which became a major source of conflict. When we finally broke up a few years ago, I had a breakdown, which I'm still recovering from. The two main relationships since my ex have been both have been have have both been people with major mental health, behavioral, and addiction problems. So I've repeated the pattern. I've taken a break from dating for the past two years and have been working on my mental and physical health. It's still a challenge to put my own needs first, let alone identify them. I've found attachment-based therapy, schema therapy, and EMDR to be helpful. I'd love to have I'd love to have a partner, but I struggle with the idea that anyone could genuinely want me for who I am or care about me rather than need me. And I don't want to repeat my pattern of selecting deeply unwell people to rescue. Just chiming in here. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you are 
in therapy and you're recovering and you're taking some time away from relationships. It sounds like that's a wise choice and, and good for you for taking that move. And you're saying that there's a few things here. One is, is that you, while 16 years in a relationship, on one hand, you were focusing on the codependency and taking care of him. And on the other and in that sort of cycle, but on the other hand, you, you knew that you were in a toxic relationship and you were repeating patterns from your childhood. And it's like, I, I should, uh, I should leave, but you know, I, I'm too overwhelmed and f- too frightened to leave. And there's, there's a lot of other elements to this, right? That other than what we would frame as codependency, the abuse you went through, the low self-esteem, the lack of connection with the self that you were denied the ability to connect with when you were young. I mean, all these, all these factors contribute to the overwhelming feeling. You know, it, it's kind of weird, and some of you might be able to uh, relate to this, is that you're in a situation where your, uh, your life is becoming unmanageable. Um, your relationship, your substance use, your work, your finances, your parenting, your um, taking care of your parents, or you know, there's there's something that is just overwhelmingly stressing you out. And we have this tendency when things get beyond a certain threshold, particularly if we come from a background of abuse and mistreatment, that we basically just put our head in the sand, not because of a choice, but because we're just so overwhelmed. And what that ends up doing is it ends up perpetuating the problem or prolonging the problem. You know, we like, I can identify this for myself is that when I have like a a medical concern, I, I have a fair amount of anxiety. And so when that happens, particularly in the past, when I was, uh, you know, I had mild PTSD regarding medical procedures to the point where I would, I fainted one time when I was just having a routine thing happen to me. And because my body just did not uh, like it, you know, my brain, my prefrontal cortex was like, it's fine. Everything's fine. It's just a needle or it's just a procedure. It's, it's, it's okay. You're in good hands. Everything's okay. It's a science based, but you know, the 99.9% of the rest of me, my the rest of my brain and the rest of my body was just like, nope, this is not okay based on past experiences. And so there were times, particularly in the past, where I would have some kind of medical concern and uh, I would be overwhelmed with feelings of fear and, and um, I don't know, just terror. And as a result, I would do nothing. I would just avoid the whole thing and just try to get through every day, right? Just do my work or you know, distract myself and uh, uh, totally putting it off. And of course, uh, that's not a good idea to do when you have a medical problem. <laughs> like you should, uh, you know, sooner the better you, the medical attention because um, you could you could really harm yourself if you wait a long time. And I knew that, but the overwhelming feelings were so crippling that uh, that was all that I could manage. And so maybe that's what you're talking about. Anonymous patron is saying, you know, I knew I was in a toxic relationship, but I was too frightened and, you know, just overwhelmed with the feelings that I just, I just, you know, avoided the whole thing and just persevered day to day. And then you also talk about how when you did break up, when the two of you finally broke up, you had a breakdown, which you're still recovering from. I'm not really sure what you're referring to, but it sounds like, you know, a fairly intense emotional experience. And, you know, based on what you've been telling me, 
you were abused growing up, and then at the age of 21, which is very young, you entered into this another toxic relationship, possibly abusive. Hard, hard to know if that would be your term for it. But So for the first 37 years of your life, you've been abused or mistreated and, and surviving, and, and then all of a sudden you cross that threshold away from your childhood, away from this relationship, and everything just kind of hits you, all the grief, all the pain, and, you know, that that would be my conceptualization potentially of, of what happened. And then you say you entered into two more relationships that were uh, people with major mental health behavior and addiction problems, you know, furthering that codependency. And then you're taking a break. You're going to EMDR, which is probably addressing the traumas you went through early in life. I'm, I'm glad you're doing attachment-based and schema therapy, which is, of course, right up my alley. And then you're saying, you know, I'd love to have a partner, but I struggle with the idea that anyone could genuinely want me for who I am or care about me rather than need me. And, of course, that has to do with your schemas and with your insecure attachment and uh, addressing that. And it could take a long time. Well, well probably help. And so I'm really glad you're doing that. You end the email by saying, thank you so much for the podcast. I've been listening since 2012. The podcast has helped me enormously in understanding myself and others. And you and Bob feel like old friends. Uh, End of email. Well, that's really, really sweet of you, anonymous anonymous patron. And uh, since 2012, I mean, that goes way back. That goes back to a time when the podcast was questionable back then, particularly back then because I was in I was getting my doctorate then and did not have time to prepare for the podcast but I don't know it's interesting it'd be interesting to find the person who's been listening the longest if you think you've been listening you know as long as 2012 or even earlier uh, let me know uh, now of course if you're my mom or my sister or someone like that um, that doesn't really count because you were probably just being nice at the time, but I'd be curious about that because I'd also be curious if, if you have been listening a long time, what your, what your observations are about how the podcast has evolved over time. Uh, I'd be, I'd just be interested to hear what, you know, what you think about it. Yeah. I don't know how Lyndon, I know you've been listening a long time, but anyway, um, the other thing that I'm hearing is that you started listening to the podcast while you were in that relationship, you know, you've been through a lot while, while listening to the podcast, which is kind of interesting to think about. All right. This next email is from patron Tatiana from Austin. She writes, after listening to this deep dive, I believe I have a codependent mother. She's all, she's just always exerting control, especially over me and my daughter. She spoils us a lot, but criticizes us in a very toxic, abusive way. She has had a very traumatic childhood. She was sexually abused by her father and one of her uncles. My daughter and I are actually not under-functioners, though. We may be over-functioners. Out of all the people in the family, we are the only ones who did well in school and who have been independent. We are doing well compared to everyone else. By the way, she lives with us. I had to put a keyed lock on my daughter's and my room door because my mom is the type of person who will snoop through things. She reads letters. Uh, she reads letters, reads open computer emails and social media. This was actually one of the reasons she had conflicts with men that she dated. She trusts no one, not even her daughter and her, or her granddaughter. And she uses excuses like, "Well, I just wanted to help you tidy up your room and help you do the laundry, and I found this. 
I have tried to tell my mom to get some help or tried to point out what she does, especially how harmful it is to my marriage and my kids, but she does not comprehend it. She does not see it as her fault. She always blames everyone else. End of email. Yeah, so a few things here. One, it sounds awful what you're going through. And, you know, the cycle continues through the generations because she had a very traumatic childhood. It sounds utterly awful what she went through. And uh, you're saying that, you know, she might be codependent. She's controlling. She criticizes a lot. You know, I, I don't... So I don't want to equate controlling behavior with codependency. It can be. It's a red flag for that. And it would certainly explain why a lot of people are controlling in relationships. But it's not always the case. And so, you know, based on your description, what you're telling me is that you, you and your daughter are doing pretty well. You're not the other side of the coin to the codependency. And yet she is being controlling and she criticizes and micromanages and exerts control. And so it's possible, it's possible that she's trying to force a codependent dependent relationship. It's also possible that she's controlling from a different set of schemas. There are other schemas that can result in controlling. For example, just the feeling of being out of control, the feeling of you, you are either the, the abuser or you're the abused. You're either the controller or you're being controlled. And you could imagine how she could in, internalize that schema when she was young, being abused by multiple men in her family. You're either someone that's in control and, and, and from her perception safe, or you are the victim. And that's how you connect to people. You connect to people through victimization. And her version of that is through control and criticism, you know, criticism and toxicity. So, you know, I don't know if she's necessarily codependent. But you also, in you, this, your email was longer than this. You talked about how your siblings are actually under-functioning. It's possible that your codependent mother is mainly codependent with them, and she's trying to force you and your daughter into that kind of mold. I, I don't know. The other thing is, as is, is I was talking about before, is just because you're doing well in life doesn't mean that you're not under-functioning. You can, you can be doing well in life, like your job and this sort of thing, and at the same time, giving off a subtle clues and cues that you are in need of help from other people. The other thing is, is that she lives with you and you're describing a scenario that most people would not tolerate. I don't know what the situation is, but you have to wonder <clears throat> why uh, you've chose to have her live with you, right? Now, maybe it's out of loyalty or something. I don't know. But, and of course I can't comment on the wisdom of having her live with you, but it is a question worth you know exploring in therapy, which is, how am I participating in this enmeshment? What am I doing and my daughter now doing to provoke this system of what we're seeing? Now, it's not blaming the victim. You're not at fault for the way she victimizes you. But the fact that you, from what I can tell in your email, you've chosen to have her live with you, you know? And so, um, you know, you don't live in her house. She lives in your house. And so, you know, I would just, I would explore that in therapy. Um, but it's possible that she's not necessarily codependent towards you, that it's just a model that she learned, you know, a working model of relationships that's like that involves control and a lack of boundary. You know, she's invading your space and it feels abusive, right? That's always the thing that I always 
uh, talk about with my trainees is don't think about the content all the time. Think about what it feels like and, and really focus on the purity of the feeling as a guide for what's really happening. When she invades your, you know, when she snoops around in your room, you frame it as, well, she's snooping. But what does it feel like? It probably, it sounds like it, and I could see it feeling this way. It feels invasive. It feels abusive. It feels aggressive. It feels unsafe. It feels dangerous. Like she's just going to go through my stuff, you know, and it, it's scary. It can be really scary. You know, there's snooping and then there's abusive snooping, I suppose. So if it produces a feeling in you and your daughter in particular, a feeling of being abused, almost like you're your physical boundaries are being violated. Well, of course she went through a ton of that as a child and she's recreating that. Right now you're trying to say, Hey, get some help, you know, but, uh, and she's not up for it, but you know, I would, I would continue on that campaign because all three of you deserve therapy from at this point. All right. This next email is from patron Mary from Seattle. She says, I feel like I might have had some dependent traits growing up, nothing pathological, And then I developed codependent chameleon type as an adult in response to an unhealthy relationship. Would that be possible? Um, As the chameleon type, I gave up on myself. I adjusted to my partner. I discovered later he had past traumas and I minimized his abuses toward me. However, I adjusted almost unwillingly out of fear to end crazy disputes with him. My partner has some horrible traumas and projected them onto our couple's problems. My lack of assertiveness, guilt, and immaturity did not provide the corrective experiences that could help him overcome these traumas. Instead, he got violent, dominant, and I ended up confused about who I am. End of email. Well, I'm sorry you went through that, Mary. That sounds truly awful, you know, for the abuse to happen and for it to kind of get into your brain in that way is common and, you know, tragic. And I'm, I'm sorry. I hope that you can recover from that. You deserve that. Uh, and your question is, you feel like you had some dependent traits while growing up, which uh, I assume you're meaning that you had uh, schemas of incompetence and neediness and that other people um, need to be close in order for you to survive, which is really quite different than codependency, right? They can overlap in rare cases, but um, you know, dependency is to be childish, to feel incompetent to act incompetent to glom onto people who will fix your problems, you know, maybe even a codependent person. And then you're saying that, uh, and then I think what you're observing is that you're, you're saying as a slightly dependent person, I um, had the misfortune of being someone who has a lot of traumas and acted those out on me and abused me. And I became a chameleon. I just gave up further on myself and, became whatever he needed me to be so I could avoid being abused. Um, And then you're saying maybe I was a chameleon type of codependent. And uh, based on what you're describing, that's not how I would frame it in my conceptual framework. Uh, Codependency means that you have a deep, deep need to fix other people's self-destruction, right? You you need to fix it, not that you need to adjust, you know, just because, and maybe this is good that we're doing this follow-up, you know, just because you were a chameleon doesn't mean you're a chameleon codependent. There's a lot of different avenues to become a chameleon. Also, just because you're a chameleon in an abusive relationship does not mean you're a codependent chameleon. 
Um, so uh, if based on what you're saying, uh, it would surprise me if you also had the deep, uh, you know, main schemas involved in codependency. Uh, it would make more sense that you have, you know, a tendency towards towards dependent personality. And this person fits well with that because he he tells you what to do essentially, and it and that satisfies that feeling for you. And of course, it backfires for everyone, mainly for you. But I don't know. I, I can't really tell from what you're saying. All right. This next email is from anonymous patron. She writes, "I was involved with a codependent individual who is also a narcissist and a sociopath. This individual is addicted to benzodiazepines and opiates." This codependent individual would gleefully step all over others whenever they could get away with it for the sake of fulfilling some kind of personal goal. They refused to honor a single boundary I would set. Performing a harmful action on another human being was like taking a hit of some kind of drugs for them. In my experience, the codependent treated this codependent person treated their entire environment and the humans in it like a playground and it, that entirely belongs to them. The people around them were pawns end of email. Okay. Well, so you didn't, you know, describe any codependency in there. What you're describing is what you're calling sociopathy, but what generally is called psychopathy or antisocial. Um, I'm not sure where the codependency is in there. Um, and maybe it is, and I'm just not picking up on it or, you know, you didn't have enough space to describe it, but Remember that, code, you know, just because someone's controlling or invasive or critical or micromanaging even does not mean that they're codependent. Codependent in my frame, and, and it reflects the main gist of the clinical expert literature in that the main schema underneath the codependency, the driver, is this desperate anxiety about the self-destruction from other people, other people's self-destructive nature or behavior. And this person feels responsible for that. And they feel, you know, tremendously unsafe if they're not putting efforts into saving someone in this way. Even when no one around them is self-destructing, self-destructing, they still assume that someone is self-destructing and they have to solve it. Now, that can result in someone having an addiction. It can result in someone, you know, to cope. It can result in this codependent person being very controlling and abusive. It can. Uh, I think it's a, you know, it's a rare form, but um, but it definitely can happen. Uh, and I suppose codependency could overlap with narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, uh, or absolutely, it can. I talked about it in the last in the last follow up. And codependency could overlap with psychopathy. You know, I'd be surprised, right? Because psychopaths generally don't care about other people, right? So that kind of negates the possibility of codependency. Because codependency means you... So, you know, actually, I didn't go... I haven't gone into this, you know. Is the codependent truly empathetic? Do they truly care about other people? Or are they just running from their own anxiety by by behaviorally caring for other people. Because if they truly cared about the other person, they would listen to them. They would have better boundaries. They would let them make their own mistakes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, as I as I think about it, I, I of the people that 
I've identified as having codependent personality, they definitely do have empathy. They definitely do care as well as invading the space and, and not creating enough learning experiences for the underfunctioner. So I would say that I don't know if I've ever come across someone that I framed as codependent and psychopathic. Um, we had someone in the previous follow-up that said that they possess some narcissistic traits. And I, I said, well, yeah, you know, it's, it, it is uh, possible to, and then someone else was saying that when you go through difficult times of a particular sort in childhood, it seems like to, uh, to fight is to be codependent and to run away is to be narcissistic. Anyway, uh, did I, or they maybe had that backwards, what they were saying. But anyway, point is, is that what you're describing to me is, is clearly psychopathic though, the lack of empathy and maybe sadistic, right? You're saying, you know, this person treated their entire environment like a playground that entirely belonged to them. That's not a codependent thing. Now, can codependence be entitled to invade other people's space? Yeah, but it has to be, we have to conceptualize because we can't know for sure. There's no blood test for this, but in order for some to be labeled codependent in my frame, and I think in the main clinical literature frame, they have to be driven by a desire and by an anxiety of fixing other people's problems. Um, so I, I'm glad that people are emailing in because sometimes I think the way, you know, people, as they hear, a deep dive. They're just like, Oh, you know, behaviorally that sounds like this person, but they don't also take into account like, well, where is that behavior coming from? Cause that behavior can come from a lot of different places, including codependency. Right. So I don't know, but if you want more clarification, feel free to email in. All right. This next email anonymous from Finland, he writes in and says the codependency deep dive was great. It made me think if I have some of the traits, Something that I consider a bit weird looking back at my relationships was that I felt put off if the woman I was with had been prescribed medicine for whatever her mental condition was, but if she was addicted to alcohol or some stronger drugs or just had some deep issues but wasn't taking medicine for it, that often ignited my sympathy for her and made me want to rescue her. End of email. Yeah, I think what you're saying, Anonymous from Finland, is that if someone was actually functionally non self-destructively addressing their issues, you either felt neutral about it or even put off by it. But if she had issues that she was self-destructing around, you felt uh, immediate sympathy and wanted to rescue her, felt pulled to her. You know, that's the classic codependent experience, which you're describing. All right. This next email anonymous patron from San Francisco. She writes, I was in a codependent marriage. I was definitely what you would call the controlling codependent. It's hard to describe what it feels like. I thought that if I didn't do things for him, like help him keep a job, manage his bills, keep up relationships with his family, then not only would his life get in, intolerably terrible, mine would too. I could not see us as separate people. I felt like I had to be perfect but I also felt like he was allowed to have no responsibilities and should not face the consequences of his actions. Well, in therapy, well, well, I've been in therapy in Al-Anon for almost three years now. I'm also a year into a new relationship where my boyfriend loves me, but doesn't need me to get by. I've had to learn to accept love that isn't based in fear and sacrifice. I don't know if I could still say that I'm codependent anymore based on your uh, definition. At the time, I definitely was, but I've put in massive amounts of effort to rewrite my brain. 
However, I think I could I think I could always fall back into old patterns. I still call myself codependent even though I'm not actively doing anything codependent. The label helps me describe the feelings I have. I've I I, st- I still have to manage others. Sorry. The label helps me to describe the feelings I still have to manage others' emotions and give too much. End of email. Yeah. You're describing a classic example and good for you for being able to heal and to seek help and to cultivate a relationship that doesn't involve underfunctioning codependency. And, you know, it's easy to look at controlling people and be like, what's wrong with you? But, you know, to hear someone like anonymous patron from San Francisco, she's saying, you know, it's, I thought if I didn't do things for him, then not only would his life become intolerably terrible, but mine would too. That is the anxiety. When you have that fear, that irrational fear, you have to do something about it. You know, if something terrible is coming, you better do something about it. And the chameleons will chameleon and the helpers will help and the controllers will control. It's, it's all just a desperate act of trying to solve a problem that doesn't really exist. And, you know, she's also saying, I, you know, I didn't see us as separate. Uh, I felt like I had to be perfect, but he could be whatever he wanted to be. Um, but then later on, you describe, you know, so I don't think I'm codependent anymore. So for my label of codependent personality, it all depends on if you have, a, you know, a, a a significant amount of the schema. If if they if those schemas are still around, which I imagine they would be, even you know three years is not a lot of time to completely re- rewire your brain. But you know who knows? Maybe you've done done that, or you just had a mild case of it. I don't know. That if you have still those tendencies, but you're not acting on them, I would still say you're codependent personality in in my frame. In the same way that you can be borderline personality or disorganized attachment and still have a and and but actually work really hard at having a functional life but you definitely have the you know the the irrational uh, feelings and the motivations and the behaviors from that and what you're saying is that you still have to manage your emotions you know you still have to manage your impulses and that would tell me that you're uh you're managing your codependency very well. Now, over time, with enough corrective experiences, it's possible that you won't even have those feelings anymore and you won't have to manage them. And then in my scheme, you would no longer qualify for codependent personality, if that makes sense. And it seems like you're well on your way, which is wonderful to hear. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. He writes, Since I began following your podcast, I have tried to understand my mother's personality as well as my own. I just finished listening to your episode on codependency. It is the first description of my mother's personality that has ticked every box. I am a 26-year-old male who has been struggling to varying degrees with depression and low self-esteem since my early teens, possibly longer. But with thanks to your podcast, I am now seeing my way out of one of the worst depressive episodes I have ever experienced. My mother's father was very abusive to all the children. Her mother was subservient to her father. Uh, My mother completely fits your description of a controlling codependent personality. She will frequently attempt to micromanage me and my sister. This has caused massive strain in our relationship since I was a teenager. 
Recently, I asked her to not clean my room, as cleaning my room myself is a big step in getting over my depressive episode. The next day, while I was visiting a friend, she tidied my room. When I confronted her about it, she said, You told me not to clean your room. I only tidied it. I told her that was not a good excuse and asked her why she had betrayed my trust when I had made my feelings very clear. She could not give me a good answer, as if she didn't even understand why she did it herself. Okay, just chiming in here. Uh, first off, I'm glad that the podcast has helped you, and it sounds like you're pulling out of depression, which is fantastic, and you're working on things. And you're describing a situation where you are now emerging out of underfunctioning, right? Now, I don't know if you were underfunctioning as, as a depressed person. Um, it wouldn't be unusual to self to be to have self destructive behaviors when you're depressed. But at the very least, you were struggling with something, and your mother was probably very locked in on that because of her codependent personality. And as you emerge out of underfunctioning, or your depression, however you want to frame it, and start to change, it is very threatening to her. And because if she has codependent personality, as you imagine, she has deep anxiety and a need. And also remember that for many people with codependency, without someone to overfunction for, they have to face themselves and they only see emptiness and there's, there's no purpose there. Um, and they assume that other people are going to uh, self-destruct w without their help. And so they just, it just becomes like an autopilot thing. And it's interesting that you observe that it's like, uh, I confronted her about it and it's she didn't really have a response because she didn't really even under she didn't seem to even understand herself why she tidied my room when I explicitly told her not to you know I'm a 26 year old man stop doing that for me so it's interesting that you know you, you understand the compulsive nature of of codependency it's not a choice that people make usually you go on to say she she also shows desperation in her forced advice and micromanaging becoming increasingly frustrated and verbally ridiculing me when I choose not to follow her advice or decline her help. Just chiming in here. Yeah, that's a, I think I described that in the deep dive, that particularly if you're the controlling type, but even if you're the helping type, there's a anger by the codependent person when you don't follow their advice, when you don't accept their help. It's you know, then it's then you realize like, oh, you don't really want to help me. You just want you just want to do your thing. Like you're on a you're on a path, and I my feelings about it have nothing to do with it. Me benefiting from your help has nothing to do with it. You're just I'm just a pawn in your codependent anxiety. You know, going on in the email, she has consistently expressed worry over the years, even stating that many nights she struggles to sleep due to anxious thoughts. Just chiming in here. Yeah, codependent people often, if not always, have tremendous anxiety. And it it would, uh, wouldn't surprise me if a codependent person reported to me that they could not sleep at night because they were mulling over all the things that were out of their control that they're trying to control. It, you know, it's always like someone else's future horrible thing happening. And, and you know, some of that's normal, right? Parents will worry about their kids and they'll have a, a few sleepless nights every now and then. But constantly, right? And at the complete expense of their own, you know, happiness and well-being. Um, they're not lying awake at night thinking about like, hmm, how am I going to 
build the life that I want. You know, it's all about other people. You go on to say, she has difficulties in almost all of her relationships and cannot understand why people have a problem with her, which upsets her greatly. Recently, she told me that she feels like no one loves her, and I asked her why, to which she said, nobody respects her. After some discussion, I came to the conclusion that she equates compliance with respect and respect with love. Just chiming in here. Yeah, absolutely, anonymous patron. That's that's precisely the schema that not all codependents have, but, but many do, that... Uh, compliance means that they can enact their codependency without any kind of snags, right? Because they're desperate to act out that codependent, uh, that codependent relationship. And they don't feel safe when you don't comply. You know, if, if they're not allowed to be in the codependent, you know, space where they're micromanaging and you're following the advice and, and you, and you, you believe the notion that you're incompetent and you need her. If you don't, you know, anything outside of that, she feels danger. It feels dangerous to her. And so uh, if you're in a constant state of trying to just survive, it you end up equating like, well, if you loved me, you would just comply, right? If you loved me and understood and, and cared about my feelings, you would take my advice. You would accept the micromanaging. And it becomes, you know, pretty twisted, right? And it, it takes if you know these sorts of codependent people that are pretty far up the spectrum when they recover it takes a long time and some people have reported this in the emails it takes a long time to learn wait so i can i can be in a relationship and have mutual love that doesn't involve me solving their problems like i i've never experienced that before. I've never even thought that was possible. I've never seen it before because a lot of people emerge from codependency and their family of origin. You go on through email. I have obviously tried setting boundaries with her, which doesn't work. I have tried communicating my emotions to her by modeling your quote unquote corny way of communicating. And she does not really acknowledge my feelings and just wants to debate surface level facts. Just chiming in here. Yeah. The codependent micromanager will be very good at debating surface level facts as you put them you know you will say something like hey you know i'm in therapy i'm recovering from depression i don't need you to clean my room or or tidy it up anymore and they'll say like um well you know sometimes you uh remember that one time you know that's that's a codependent thing (laughs) that you'll see it remember that one time when you didn't clean your room and mold grew in the corner and we had to pay for this special cleaning service to come clean your, your room. Um, you know, they, they remember stuff like that because that's what drives them. They, it's sort of like similar to a borderline individual where they have cataloged every time you have hurt them. Uh, not every time, it's an exaggeration, but uh, they've cataloged, they have a list that, you know, you ask them, okay, tell me your top five times where I betrayed you, you know, off the top of their head, they'll be able to come up with, with those because they're very focused on them because they're very triggered by them and they're, they're hypervigilant about them. The codependent person, however, is hypervigilant around self-destruction and underfunctioning. And so they catalog all that stuff because that's what they mull over at night. They're like, okay, if I don't clean his room tomorrow, what if that mold grows or, you know, cause they have anxiety and their anxiety just latches on to any sort of detail, even though it doesn't, it still doesn't justify the anxiety, but it, it does kind of to them, you know? So, uh, 
so yeah, you're saying that you've tried to talk in your corny way, you know, in the way that I recommend and she doesn't accept it, you know, I, but I wonder, I wonder if you just kept at it, you know, kept at the corny, kept at the differentiation, if there would be at least some change, but, uh, you can, the thing, okay, here's the thing uh, that maybe I should say that if you have a codependent person who is codependent with you and targeting you with their codependency and you're trying to get out of it, the the uh, the best you can usually expect is to draw boundaries with them so that they will actually focus on someone else. Uh, I've been in this situation before, and it seems kind of weird just to be like, well, but I want them to be different. Well, they can't be different until they face what's, until they even acknowledge that they have a problem, which they often don't do. So, uh, until they acknowledge like, oh, I have, I'm codependent and I have schemas and I have traumas that I need to work on and I'm going to work on them in therapy. Until they do that, the, you know, chances are they, they have no awareness of why of what's happening and they're completely inundated with the codependent distortions and believe everything that occurs to them, you know, completely undifferentiatedly. And so uh, to struggle to change the relationship while they retain their personality disorder, it's not rational to think that way. It's And I get it because she's your mom and you'd like things to be different, but it's not likely to change until she actually changes for herself. So the best that you can do often is just figure out kind of a, so there's kind of two phases that I've worked on. The first phase is de-enmeshing, which can take a long time. You have to uh, go through a lot of negative feedback loops where you draw a boundary, they don't respect it. You draw it again, they don't respect it. You 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 amp it up. You you take more actions, more boundaries, more boundaries, more boundaries, and then eventually they start to learn and they react. They get upset. They yell. They cry. They they plead. They blame. They triangulate, which is a whole other mess. But you you stand your ground and. Eventually, what they will do, unless they get help, which you know you obviously can suggest, but if they don't get help, their codependency needs someone to focus on. So they will just shift. Once you become an untenable target of their codependency, they will just shift to someone else. And that's not a cure overall, but it is a cure for you. And so I should say that because I, I, I hear in a lot of these emails like, I'm trying to change things and I'm like, uh, it's not likely to work. Yeah. Going on with your email. I find it impossible to reconcile our relationship as she becomes very defensive when I try to talk about my experiences with her and is unable to see that her behavior is wrong. We recently started individual therapy at the time, at the same time, but she quit after three sessions as she did not get on with her therapist and has not looked for another one, despite me giving her recommendations. I do not know how I can continue my relationship with her, as it is far too difficult, and I have to focus on recovering from my own mental health issues. I'm honestly very tempted to ask her to listen to your podcast episode and see if she comes to a realization from that. End of email. Yeah, people have done that. People have had others listen to a deep dive, and I'd say there's mixed results, but you know, what's the worst case scenario, right? (laughs) 
Um, so yeah. Um, I, I don't, I can't recommend that. I don't know if that's what's best for you. I would ask your therapist about it, but you know, if, if you do that, let me know how it goes. Uh, but bottom line, anonymous patron, I'm glad you're recovering. You deserve that. I'm glad you're drawing boundaries. You deserve that. I'm glad you're seeing the forest for the trees. You're seeing that your mom is being unfair and that there's, she's coming from a desperate place. It's not personal to you. So you're a very wise, smart, empathetic person. All right. This next email is from patron Teresa. She says, Dear Kirk, I was wondering if you could recommend some science-based literature about alcoholism for the codependent and for dependent people. Uh, just chiming in here, I- I'm terrible with this sort of thing. I um, don't catalog that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I I would maybe ask someone else that knows about these sort of things. or Or, you know, one of the... Uh, funnest things to do is, you know, a lot of books on Amazon or other websites are selling for extremely uh, low prices for a penny. And then it's like four bucks for shipping or something. So you could just buy like five books that seem like they might be good and look them over. Your other question here. My other question would be, what is your opinion of alcoholic alcoholics anonymous End of email? My, my opinion of alcoholics anonymous, my opinion of AA is, is very positive. Uh, is it, does it always work? No. But when you look at the uh, outcomes of any treatment protocol for addiction, uh, you realize that um, even if it works some of the time, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Are there bad things about AA? Sure. I mean, are there, that's not bad inherently, but are there things that don't necessarily match with everyone. You know, some people have the, a problem with the higher power, but there are AA groups that actually are specifically designed to ex- excise that higher power issue just because it, it, for whatever reason, just tweaks some people. Um, you know, the 12 steps work pretty well, but the, but the main thing that AA is, uh, the function of AA, the main driving force as to why it has cured so many people of their addiction helped to and helped people to remain sober is the peer aspect of it the the supportive aspect of it that it's it's a weird if you don't know what aa is or you know what it actually is like when you go to a group the very common format for an aa group or an na group or any of the you know similar 12 step group uh, is you go and um Someone will lead it off. It, it's usually a, it's always a member. It's not like a professional or a therapist. It's it's just a, a fellow member, and they volunteer to start off. You know, there's usually some kind of intro, like you might read a passage or something. And then the bulk of the meeting is people just sharing. You know, someone you might see in the in the movies or TV shows. Someone walks up to a podium. Uh, I've never seen that. Generally, what I've seen is um, AA groups being pretty small, being like, you know, 15 people and people just sit in a, in a circle or in a clump. And one by one, people just start talking. They just start, hey, you know, I've had kind of a rough week. I've had a, I relapsed last week and 
I feel pretty bad about myself, but you know, my sponsor has been helping me to not feel ashamed. And I just want to say that I'm rededicating myself to sobriety and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm back to, you know, I, I had three months sober sobriety and now I'm back to only having like a week and, or another person stands up and says, you know, I've been sober for 20 years. I haven't even relapsed in that time, but I went on a vacation or I'm about to go on a vacation next week and I'm having tremendous cravings about, you know, having a drink when I arrive in Hawaii. And I just have to remind myself that remember what, it, yeah, sure. Maybe I could have one drink, but remember what I, what happened to me when I allowed that thought to enter my mind 30 years ago, I became a drunk and I still am a drunk, even though I have 20 years sobriety. And I need to remind myself, you know, there, there's, they're often talking out loud and there's a lot of human function that happens in here. One is, is that you're allowed to speak out loud with, and no one responds. Like no one says, Oh, tell me more. No one asks clarifying questions. It's just people listening and nodding their head, maybe saying, "Uh uh-huh, that kind of stuff, but it's mainly quietly listening. So you're given this chance to, really explore and you can talk for as long as you want. Uh, generally people don't take hours, <laughs> you know, generally it's like five minutes or something, but, but you're, you're given the floor and you, and you can talk and it, there's a, there's a powerful function of having the space to freely talk and to be vulnerable with people that understand and no one interrupts you or inserts their own life into it. And no one provides advice. That might surprise some people if, you, if you've never been to AA. No one advises you. No one says, oh, try this. No one gives any tips, at least in the good AA groups that I've been to. No one tries to help. They're just like, yeah, hear you. Now, maybe afterward, they might walk up to you and say, hey, would you, would you like some tips? Or would you like some help? Or would you like to hang out on Friday night to help you get through that night? Because I know that could be a, a, a vulnerable day for you in terms of cravings to use you know there might be some of that for sure but in the meeting itself during the sharing there's there's no there's there's no therapy you know in in the sort of helping sense in the advising sense it's all listening and that's a powerful experience we as humans rarely get that where we can just talk particularly to a group and no one tries to save us. No one tries to help. No one freaks out. No one judges us. Everyone understands. They just, it's like, yeah, okay. You know, even when people will say things that are really self-destructive, someone will stand up and say, you know what? I'm thinking about drinking again and I don't know what to do. And um, I don't even know why I'm here. And then they sit back down. No one says, oh my God, you know, sometimes that happens, but it's not, it's not the protocol. Um, you're just supposed to say, okay, well, that person just shared. That's where they're at. And, and I've been there before. Um, the other powerful thing of AA and other similar groups is when a group decides to do something, when a group dedicates themselves to some things, to something, it has a powerful effect over motivation. When AA groups, as a group, stand up and they say, we all dedicate ourselves to sobriety. I'm going to be sober today. I'm, we are going to be sober. It, it is totally counter to American individualism, but when we are in a group and the group dedicates itself, you know, itself to something and a part of us 
you know, because the thing is with addiction is one model, one way to think about addiction is that everybody who suffers from substance abuse problems are of two minds. On one mind, they want to be functional. On the other mind, they want to self-destruct. They want to use. And it's a constant battle between those two voices. What It's not literal voices, but um, it's this these thoughts of like, sobriety is good and I don't need substances to be happy and remember what happened in the past and think about the hangovers and think about the money expenditure and think about the embarrassment, the humiliation, all the terrible things that have happened when I was using. And then there, but there's another side of them is just like, who cares? Life is short. You can have a couple drinks. Other people drink socially. You know, all those bad things that happened, you know, other people have bad things that happen. It's not a big deal. You've been through a lot. You know, life is meaningless anyway. What's the point? You know, there's all these voices of just like drink or abuse or whatever. And when you go to a group of people who are of one of those minds, you will go in that direction because in all likelihood, because we are social creatures and highly affected by mob mentality, essentially groupthink. So when you are on the fence and you hang out with other people who are drinking, the likelihood of you drinking is much higher. And that's why it's very important if you're going through recovery to avoid people who are actively in the throes of using. However, if you go to a group of people who are like dedicating them, you know, all those people in the AA uh, group, those 15 people all are of two minds, but they're deciding to go with the healthy, sober mind, recovering mind. And they speak from that place. And in the end, what happens by the end of the meeting, uh, generally speaking for everyone in that room, their, their addict voice has been diminished significantly. People will walk into meetings 50, 50, you know, they're like 50, 50 chance I use today. They walk out of the meeting 99% sure and 99% likely to be sober that day. That's why they say, just keep coming to the meeting. Just keep coming. And all the criticisms about AA I find to be really weird. Like people will say it's like a cult or it's like a religion or something. And I'm like, have you been to AA? Like it's, it's not, you know, no one's pressuring you. Now, the other thing about AA is that it's made up of human beings and there's no organizing body or ethics board or anything, right? I mean, maybe there is, but certainly not a lot of oversight and because uh, every town has multiple AA meetings that are happening, you know, every day. And uh, so could you have an AA group that gets a little wonky or has a couple charismatic people in there who are wrongheaded? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's a human endeavor. It's just, it's just a bunch of humans uh, democratically deciding to try to help each other. And um, everyone's doing it essentially for free. And, so it's, um, you know, can there be art? Can there be bad stories? Can there be bad experiences? Absolutely. hundred percent. You know, again, it's, it's humans. Can you go to a meeting and have uh, a, a group of people who are like, Hey, we're going to go use afterwards. Let's go. And then that engages your addict mind and you go use. Um, yeah, that happens. It happens all the time, particularly in, in like NA groups. Um, you would hear that, that a lot of narcotics anonymous, groups there would because the presumably or the thought is is that the compulsion to use like heroin or cocaine is so much or meth is so much higher 
Um, and you know, it's so hard to kick the habit of heroin or meth, but anyway, so can that happen? Yes. And it does, but people who will talk negatively about these groups will cite these examples. And I'm like, out of the millions upon millions of people who have used these groups to recover, you're at, you're citing a few examples where things went wrong. Yeah, that happens sometimes, you know, sometimes people will. Um, talk about better help that way, you know, because they will sponsor episodes sometimes. And people will, you know, give me these examples of how better help is, is a problem. Yeah, you know, it's, it, there's tens of thousands of therapists that are working under this umbrella. Are there, you know me, I mean, <laughs> there are some bad therapists out there and some of them happen to work for better help, you know? So can you have some bad experiences? 100%. And, um, the other thing I'll say, just to cap it off on the BetterHelp thing, because I, I still get emails about it sometimes, is th- there's just a lot of propaganda on the internet. I don't know why. I did a whole episode about like is BetterHelp evil or not. You know, go back and listen to that. And there's been other uh, investigations, and the uh, what's odd to me is that the rhetoric that I hear around BetterHelp, it, it's almost like there's this automatic suspicion of the organization just because of its nature. But what I tell people is BetterHelp is essentially like Google. You know, when you go on Google and you Google like, you know, barbershops, you know, hair cutters, it just gives you a list, right? Or Yelp, you know, you when you go on Yelp, it's just a registered list of of providers of that service and BetterHelp is essentially that except BetterHelp also, you know, collects the fees and all that kind of stuff. So, um, that's the way to think about it. You know, it's not like BetterHelp is, is a cadre of therapists who are all sitting in a giant room waiting for you to, you know, they're all a private practicing there anyway. So, I hear similar kinds of paranoia around Alcoholics Anonymous that I, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It's like if you, if you actually know people that are going through it and have gone through it yourself, you're just like, I don't understand what all the paranoia is. And I think that our society just has a an inherent, because, you know, I sometimes forget, given my circle, that we still have a massive stigma in our uh, society around mental health in general. And... Uh, this extends into things like AA and DSHS and, um, you know, better help. And I guess psychiatry to some extent, you know, you'll, you'll hear these paranoid conspiracy theory level uh, things that people will think just because, um, and I'm just like, why are you focusing on that? Like there's probably like some database of plumbers out there (laughs) or, or some, a group of people who get together and go fishing. Um, there's not a bunch of conspiracy theories about those groups. It, it's, it, I think there's something about the stigma around mental health that gets kind of morphed into this general suspicion and attacking of the institutions of mental health. Um, you know, like AA, if that makes, because, you know, AA is sort of a institution of, of mental health in a sense. But anyway, so, yeah, that's my long answer to your short question. All right, we've arrived at the last email. Uh, anonymous patron from God knows where, he says. <laughs> anonymous patron from God knows where. 
He says, A theme stood out in the codependency deep dive. Codependency is fueled by anxiety, a fear that disaster is around every corner. Growing up, that was true for me, in that it felt like my family was in a constant flight from an amorphous, nebulous, ever-present specter. In individual and group therapy, I've boiled an ocean of unexpressed anger and grief, and the tasks of my recovery are distilled down to overcoming shame and breaking codependency. As I get in touch with my sense of self, I'm noticing that codependency feels different from love. The codependent deep dive helped me understand how my family invoked codependency in a bid for love. Ironically, that created volatility, chaos, conflict, and distance instead of love. My mom and my sister manufacture and perceive problems in my life constantly. They then overfunction by invading my boundaries to avert nebulous impending disasters. You laid out an analogy in the codependent deep dive where a person was pumping gas and everyone was approaching and offering unsolicited advice. That was the vibe flowing from my older sister and my mother towards me. My freshman year of college, for example, I missed my hometown and my friends. So I filled out paperwork to transfer to a reputable, affordable local college in my hometown for my sophomore year. Because my family is highly enmeshed, I volunteered this information to my mom. My mom perceived some sort of terrible disaster that would result from the transfer, and she shamed, hectored, and cajoled me until I relented and agreed to stay the course at my original school and at my and in my original major. In cases like this, after I relented, there would be a great celebration among the family members, and the moral would be that the family saved me from my stupidity and my ineptitude. My mom and sister were controlling codependence. This led to schemas of incompetence and and defectiveness in me. It thwarted my attempts to gain independence from the family. This instilled closeness and perpetuated the family system and relationships, but it was a false closeness. That enmeshment came with a standing edict. Quote, You owe me access to all your thoughts, feelings, plans, and intentions. You cannot withhold those from me. I will call you next Sunday, and I expect you to volunteer those things. We will work through your problems when we talk. All right, just chiming in here. Yeah, so anonymous patron from God knows where is perfectly describing what it feels like to be pushed into dependent personality while having a codependent parent and sister. How it's just there's there's rules that you have to follow and you owe me access to all your thoughts, feelings, plans, and intentions, and you will volunteer those things to me. And you are incompetent. But yeah, it's just interesting that you're you're just like in your uh, freshman year in college, and you're just like, oh, you know, I kind of miss my hometown. I, I think I'll transfer to a good college in my in my hometown. And somehow that's an utter uh, disaster about to happen. And my suspicion or an an hypothesis I would follow if I was working with the family in terms of trying to dig down into what, what exactly was the fear there. My guess is, is that it's either just a fear of change or a fear of you making decisions for yourself or a fear of, um, if you make this change, it might actually, um, well, anyway, point is, is that, uh, it's like, why would they be afraid of you switching colleges to one that is more preferable to you in a in a major that's more preferable to you? You know what I mean? Like, and why wouldn't it be your choice to to do so? Um, now, you know, there's different cultural aspects to this as well. But anyway, you're describing it pretty well. Let's get back to your email. 
In the codependency deep dive, you said the steps for recovery included include awareness and corrective experiences. I'm on board with that. Another helpful plan that I'm simultaneously invoking is awareness and acceptance. I'm working on acceptance and embracing corrective experiences. Just chiming in here. Good for you, anonymous patron. I'm so glad you sound very aware and wise and able and you're on your way. You end here with saying, when I started there, when I started my therapy and raised some of these issues with my family, it did not go well. Just chiming in here. It's interesting, isn't it, that we hear a lot of the, uh, you know, victims or uh, underfunctioners or person of concerns of the codependents. We hear from a lot of those people saying, you know, I tried to bring this up with my family, um, even though they're adults, right? And it's like, and it didn't go well. It's like, well, no duh. <laughs> you know, you're you're challenging their very existence. You're challenging their sense of safety by bringing it up. Um, and it's interesting because in other families, um, dogs are barking. There must be someone at the front door. Um, in other families, uh, you would just sort of draw a boundary and you wouldn't talk about it. You know, you wouldn't bring it up. It, so it's just a, it's just evidence of that enmeshment. And I, and I've worked on that with clients before where it's like, you know, you don't have to inform your family that you're differentiating. You can, if you want, but if you don't think it's going to go well, you're not obligated as an adult man to tell your parents that you're making changes in your, in your life. You, there's, you have, there's no obligation there. They think you have an obligation. And, and if you want to tell them, then tell them, but do you want to tell them? And often with enmeshed, uh, you know, abuse victims, they have a really hard time answering that question. It's like, well, I don't mind telling them because they're not in connection with themselves and they feel extremely, they define themselves extremely through their, you know, codependent's eyes. Right. So, um, anyway, going back to your email, when I started my therapy and raised some of these issues with my family, it did not go well. They would like to keep the codependents going. I've faced shaming and criticism for seeking therapy. In their minds, therapy and my pondering my childhood is a risky, selfish, unnecessary activity that needlessly imperils the family system. Actually, to my family, seeking therapy is the most recent problem that I'm exhibiting, the most recent disaster that needs to be averted, the most recent example of how I, of how I simply don't understand the world, relationships, and family. End of email. Yeah. Well, so if it's any help, <laughs> uh, anonymous patron from God knows where, you seem like an incredibly competent human being. You have a very firm grasp on what's happening, a sharp mind, and are... A, and a lot of strengths because you're you're moving forward in life. So whatever sort of indoctrination you've had around your incompetence, I beg to differ. <laughs> all right, everyone. Well, that was interesting to read all of your emails and accounts and questions and stuff around codependency. Um, as I said before, I'm surprised and not surprised at how many people the concept of codependency resonated with it it's a such a common thing and so rarely discussed in the way that i was discussing it you know like i've said before it's usually discussed in a way of just like well just stop it you know it's usually discussed as if these people wake up in the morning and just decide to enable and decide to be codependent it's like well you know just draw boundaries you know instead of really understanding where this sort of behavior comes from because 
as we've heard, it comes from a very deep place. And because we've heard from a lot of codependent people and they've said, I, I don't even understand why I do that stuff. Um, I, I don't understand why I feel those feelings, but I, but when I'm not being codependent, it is incredibly scary to me. I feel very, very afraid. I feel very, very motivated. Like, uh, and I, and I don't know if anyone said this, but with the codependents I've worked with, um, you know, we could be a year into therapy about their codependency and they could know it forwards and backwards. And when they're triggered by a dependent person or a you know, self-destructive underfunctioner, all of their, uh, you know, conscious guidelines will go out the window and they're just like, well, you know, they need me right now. They're not going to fix this. Something terrible, you know, all those old tapes, you know, get, get played again and it absolutely necessitates codependent behavior. So it's really hard to change, uh, as, as we have heard and it, especially at the upper end, right. But you can change it with awareness, understanding like, Oh, I'm being triggered. Oh, that thing that I think is not rational. I'm going to look at that thing and say, no, no doom is going to happen. The other thing that I've actually worked with codependent people is that even you know, the, there's a possibility that bad things will happen, but you have to accept that because, uh, like, let's take a codependent parent and it's like, okay, your 25 year old son, if you take your hands off the wheel, he, something bad could happen. Uh, there's a small chance that he could go down a road and maybe even try to kill himself because you weren't there to save him from his problems. He could go down a road and, um, become enter into a terrible relationship. He could go down a road and be exploited by someone else. You know, these things are possible and there's no way to eliminate those possibilities without harming everyone involved. You, you can and have effectively kept them away from other people by telling him that he's incompetent and he can't do things on his own. You've effectively protected him from the world by upholding his notion that he's awkward and no one will love him. You know, you've played into that idea and and you have effectively eliminated the possibility that he's ever going to get in a car crash because he doesn't even have a license yet. He doesn't have a car yet because he believes he he's incompetent as a driver. Um, He's incompetent as a person who can do things on his own. So yeah, you've eliminated those risks. And by following my advice, you would be actually creating those risks by taking your hands off the wheel. And, and so there say, you know, there's a 0.1% chance that he literally will die as a result of those risks of you taking your hands off the wheel. And that's terrifying. That's scary. But those are necessary risks to get the bigger, more likely thing, which is him able to become competent, to feel competent, to, to have independence, to not depend on you, to have a, an adult relationship with you. You know, imagine him driving you to the store. Imagine him taking care of you, uh, you know, how, where it's more mutual between, you know, an adult man who happens to be your son, who, you know, makes his own money and has his own life and has his own relationships. And you're still involved with him. You know, that's another part of it, actually, is morphing the love 
into a different kind of love. And people have even mentioned, including Anonymous Patron from God Knows Where, that it wasn't real, really love. It was a bid for love, but it wasn't really love. It was a, it was a fake love, this codependent attention. And so, so the thing that we have to do is, because that's often the sort of false path that people will advise, which is you got to separate. No, absolutely not. So taking the codependent parent with the dependent 25-year-old, uh, it's not separating. It's not distance. You can still love and should, but it's a different kind of love. It's a differentiated love. It's a love of, a, of an adult, of a fellow adult who happens to be your child. It's mutual respect. It's mutually helping each other. It's giving each other space to do the things that you can do as adults. Uh, and it's better. You know, what a wonderful different world you can live in where you can feel like you're both contributing. You know, like with my parents, I contribute to that relationship. I initiate things. I give them gifts. I compliment them. I take care of them and they take care of me. When I was five, that wasn't possible. I wasn't developmentally there yet. And so I try to convince the codependent parents that it's not losing your child. It is gaining an adult child. It's losing your child child and gaining your adult child. Anyway, huh. I, you know, I'm guessing we'll talk about this again because uh, I think that um, there'll be more emails. And I also think it's it's on my radar now too. You know, like when I'm doing the reaction videos, I'm guessing that, and I think I already have, incorporated this new knowledge into my discourse, you know, which I, which helps, it helps to understand this is where people are coming from. You know, like if you're familiar with 90 day fiance, someone like, um, uh, is it, is her name Debbie? No, not Debbie. Um, anyway, uh, Brandon's mom, <laughs> what's her name? Uh, uh, Ron, is it Debbie? Anyway, uh, anyway, you, you know what I'm talking about? Brandon's mom seemed to be very, very invasive or not very, very invasive, but a little invasive on his life and assuming that he wouldn't be able to do things on his own um, codependency, maybe. And, and then you wonder, and then you, we would see it, it was kind of an act of desperation, right? That, and what people would say is, okay, she's a controlling mother. Uh, she wants a mama's boy, that kind of thing. Instead of well, what's what's a logical reason that would fuel this behavior on the, uh, underneath? You know, I think who knows we we would have to talk with her about this, but it seems possible that it, it's generated from that place. I have to Google who, <laughs> ninety day uh, Ron and uh, no, let's see uh, Brandon mother <laughs> Betty <laughs> Betty. Not Debbie. Um, anyway, so I think, you know, this has been interesting for me uh, to, to learn. It's been interesting to read all your emails. And I, I think, you know, this this pushes us forward in our understanding of human beings as a group. You and me, the patrons. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. <laughs>